0: If you have your Bibles, be opening to Esther chapter 2. We're going to spend our time tonight in Esther chapter 2. I've got the verses on the screen, but you may want to have the whole context open in front of you. Appreciate you being here tonight. Uh, don't always start by embarrassing visitors, but I'm going to embarrass a visitor tonight. Uh, over here to my right is Jim Black. Jim, wave it, everybody from your seat. Uh, Jim and I were in school together here at Harding. We Went into the Doctor of Ministry program together, graduated together this last May, and he is, what would you say? (laughs) It's right. We we sort of finished together. He finished a little before me, but we graduated together. And uh, he's working with Eastern European Missions. He's spoken here before, met some of you, I'm sure, when he came. If you have not met Jim, I hope you'll meet him tonight. Uh, I think you'll be encouraged to get to know him. Uh, he was a preacher in the Lord's Church for many years, but now working with Eastern European missions who we support. So, if you have questions about Ukraine or Eastern European missions or any complaints you'd like to file with Jim, I'm sure he would love to hear them. Um, and in fact, I'll give you a few if you want to file some complaints with Jim. So, uh, about him, more than, no, anyway. So, meet Jim if you haven't. Uh, I appreciate Jim a lot. Glad you're here tonight. Uh, we have been, had a, a fall tradition here at Great Oaks. One of our fall traditions is taking Sunday nights to walk through a Bible life. And it's always encouraging to me. I always enjoy just just seeing these people who have lived on the same earth that we live on with the same number of hours in the day and the decisions they made and the things they faced. It's always an encouraging study. And you always notice some things as adults that maybe you didn't notice as kids when you walk through these Bible lives and Bible classes, perhaps, if you grew up going to church. And so last week we began talking about the life of Esther. We're spending our Sunday nights looking through Esther. This is where she fits in the Bible timeline. Uh, someone even asked this in class this morning. But you see there at the top of this, of this chart, Jerusalem is destroyed in 586 B.C. It's B.C., so we're counting down, remember, And the return has already started. The temple has been rebuilt in 516 B.C., 70 years later, just like Jeremiah prophesied the exile would last. But Ezra and Nehemiah have not gone back yet. So Esther's book, the book of Esther, happens in between the finish of the temple rebuild and that big first wave that went back to Jerusalem and then Ezra coming and Nehemiah coming. It does make me wonder. Remember Nehemiah, uh, he worked as cupbearer, in Susa with the the king of Persia, which we'll see here in just a second. That's where Esther is at, in Susa. And so it makes me wonder if they might have known each other somewhere along the way. makes me wonder if surely Ezra and that group knew who she was. Um, And so there's, there's perhaps some connections there. But that's where she happens in the biblical timeline. And one of the things Christians have always loved about Esther, God's people have always loved, is in Esther's life you see God connecting events In this very background sort of way. And that's a living out of Romans 8 28, one of the favorite verses in all scripture. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God can cause all things to work together. Um, We saw last week in Esther chapter 1, doesn't look like a lot of God is happening there. You have the king of Persia. Who, who, who is drunk at this big party where, where he's, he's invited all his important people and then he invites everybody in the kingdom for seven more days. And, and he's drunk and he, he wants his wife, the queen, to come in and show off how beautiful she is. She says, I'm not coming. And so he goes to ask his advisors and his advisors are not very wise. They say, if she's done this... Every wife will start disobeying their husbands and being unkind to their husbands and disrespectful. So we've got to punish her and make this very public announcement. And so that's what they decide to do. Doesn't look like a lot of God is going on there. But God is going to be able to use even foolish, silly decisions like King Ahasuerus, also known to history as Xerxes, like his decisions to put pieces in place for things to happen at just the right time. And it makes me a little thankful, as I hope it does you, that God can use even our wrong turns along the way to put pieces in place. makes me thankful that God can work even through the people in the world who don't seem to be trying to follow Him, the rulers of the world, who don't seem to be trying to follow Him. also makes me thankful that there is a God serving as king above the earthly rulers of the world because they're just people. Like, like us. And so they're going to do silly things, despite the, the trappings of wealth and power and all that. They're just people. And we serve the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, as God has described. And so it makes me thankful as we start off the book of Esther. Uh, to see how God can use even some of these other things. So tonight we're going to walk through Esther chapter 2. I've called it Esther's New Life Begins. If you just read chapter 1, you don't know Esther yet. We read the verses last week to let us know a little preview of where she was going to come from. But Esther chapter 1 just shows these events It didn't seem to have anything to do with her. Well, you see how all that connects tonight. We're going to walk through Esther chapter 2. And if you've got the outline, you can see I've got four lessons to take home from it. So we'll do some Bible reading together. And then take some lessons from it and that'll be our lesson tonight. So let's walk through Esther chapter 2. So first of all, picking up from last time, the chapter begins with the search for the queen and we are introduced to Mordecai and Esther searching for the queen. Remember, this was the plan of the wise men. We're going to make this announcement that Vashti will no longer be allowed in the king's presence. I don't know if that means they like send her away or if it meant she she just she's allowed to sort of stay around the palace but not really see the king anymore, like sort of isolate her. History tells us that later on her son becomes king, Artaxerxes. And that she had a lot of power. She came back to sort of uh, get more power in the kingdom. So she doesn't disappear forever. And, uh, and, and she'll, in fact, have some big influence as time goes on. But, but right now she's just sort of pushed to the side. So now he comes back from the battle with Greece. History tells us that between chapters 1 and 2. There's this three-year battle where Persia attacks Greece. It goes terribly. And so he's come back home and he's reminded of what he had decided to do. So starting verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti, the queen, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So we're back home. We're we're catching up on what's going on. They hadn't got around to it yet. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, to the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Stop there just a second. You do notice, sometimes I think people portray Esther's, uh, Esther becoming queen as if there was some... Miss America pageant, and I understand, you know, there's some connections here, but this doesn't seem like something that people applied to be part of. They, they send people out to go find the ladies who are going to be pulled into this situation. This isn't something that Esther would have had much say in, uh, or anybody else for that matter. And let's be clear, this type of thing is not something in general that God approves of. Like God doesn't approve of, of a harem, a bunch of women for the king to have. Uh, remember Solomon. Well, God's very unhappy with Solomon because he multiplies wives to himself like the law of Moses had said God did not want the king to do. So this is God, God's plan from the very beginning, as Jesus would affirm, was for one man and one woman to be married for life. That, that was always the plan. And so this is a, another worldly messing up of all that. But that's again, God is going to use these wrong turns and bad decisions to bring about something for his plan. But this is the plan. We're going to go all over. Uh, we're going to get everybody from the citadel Susa to, to gather the beautiful women together, and, and they're going to be part of the king's harem. And so then, verse 4, let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So we're going to gather all these women to be part of of your, your concubines, your wives, and then you can choose one, whichever one you like, to be the queen. Verse 5 explains that in the citadel of Susa, where they were going to be gathering up, back in verse 3, where they are going to be gathering up the beautiful ladies from the citadel of Susa, in the citadel of Susa there was a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. As we pointed out last week, He comes through the line of Saul and King Saul's family, the first king of Israel. Keep that in mind because next week that little detail is going to be an interesting, ironic element of what all happens in Esther. But Mordecai comes through Saul's line and his family had been taken into exile from Jerusalem in what we now know as 597 B.C. The Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. Uh, Ezekiel was part of that exile. Uh, Mordecai's family is part of that exile. When Nebuchadnezzar, before he destroyed the city, comes in and took away a lot of the people. And so Mordecai's family was part of that. And they've been in Persia ever since. First it was Babylon. Now it's Persia. But Mordecai's only known these lands. He's never known Jerusalem. He, He didn't live there. And he's bringing up Hadassah. That is Esther. So Hadassah, her Hebrew name, meaning myrtle, like a myrtle branch, a myrtle tree. Um, Her Persian name is Esther, which people wonder might be connected to the goddess Ishtar. So if, if so, she's got a name that's connected to a Persian goddess. That doesn't sound like the type of thing you would want God's people to do. But that's what her life is, and that name means star. And Esther is his uncle's daughter for she had no father or mother. And again, we we went through some of this last week. We don't know what happened to her parents. But somewhere along the way, her parents have died. We don't know what it was. But her first cousin, who is apparently older than her, Mordecai, is raising her. At some point, he decided, I'm going to step in and help Hadassah have what she needs in life and take care of her. It says in verse 7, "...the young lady was beautiful." of form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So you see that there. She's beautiful, and that's the connection to what's happening. They're gathering up all the beautiful women to be part of the king's harem, and and she's a beautiful woman. So then let's continue into some new stuff tonight. Esther is then taken to Haggai's custody. Who is Haggai? We'll meet him here in just a second. With the other women for the harem. So Again, I don't think this is something where Mordecai and Esther put her name in a, in a hat and said, hey, we'd like to volunteer. I don't think that happened. I think the guys are going around to find the, the beautiful women and she is taken. And so then verse 8, starting, It came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai. Who was in charge of the women. So he put him in charge of getting these women ready for, for their becoming married to the king as a concubine. Now the young lady pleased him, pleased Haggai, the guy who's in charge, and found favor with him. One thing you'll notice that comes up several times in this chapter, we're just meeting Esther. Everyone who meets her is impressed with her. Everyone who meets her comes away thinking that's that's somebody special. I think it went deeper than she was a beautiful woman. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we go along. But so he recognizes her. She finds favor with him. He quickly provided her with cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Now, again, she's not officially you know, married to the king yet, but they're, they're getting these ladies ready for this. I just wonder what's going through her mind. Um, I I don't know what the thought process would be for these young ladies. Would this be something that seemed good for them or not? They don't seem to have a lot of choice. I suppose in some way, it means you're going to be taken care of for life, like they're going to make sure you have what you need living in the palace for life. I guess that's maybe that's on the positive side of things. On the other side you're not really getting to choose this. And so I don't know where she's at, but, but again, she's just been growing up, just growing up as a normal young lady in, in Susa. And all of a sudden, not only is this happening, but the guy in charge of it, she's got to notice, like, he's putting her out front. Like, he's gathered seven women just to take care of her. That's got to feel sort of strange. And, and putting her in the best place. And so, Uh, She's got to have all these crazy emotions running through her mind. Verse 10 is interesting. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Why does Mordecai tell her, don't tell people you're a Jew? It seems like he is worried that's going to hold her back in life in some way. Or maybe put her in danger in some way. And so this is a secret that's going to have to be figured out as, the, as her life goes on. Um, and when the moment comes, is she going to act on it or not? And in verse 11, Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. So he's trying to be as connected as he can be. He's trying to, to see how she's doing and, and be there for her as much as possible. Next section, how the process would work, we learn here in Esther chapter 2. How would would this whole find the queen process happen? So verses 12 through 14. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women. So notice this, this is going to be a year-long process before you even... Meet the king. They're going to get you ready for a full year. And it says, For the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. I wish I could say I knew more about whatever that process is going on. But it is some sort of beautification, make you look your best type of process. For a full year, the young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So she's just moving her and her stuff in for a night to meet the king. And this is how you're becoming the king's concubine. You spend the night with the king. Verse 14, in the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem. So she's now part of the king's harem after this night with the king. To the custody of Shazgaz, who's a new guy, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines, she would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. And again, we look at this and say, this is just not a just not a godly thing that's going on here. I mean, that, so a lot of these ladies, I'm sure, are, are called in, and then what does the end of that verse say? She, he may never see him again. He may, he may just put them in their corner of the palace. Sure, they'll be taken care of, but it doesn't feel like a, a great life. Again, this is not something I think a lot of people would have signed up for and said, I want to do this, but this is the process we're going through. And then Esther's turn comes, and that's the way it's, it's described here um, as this next couple of verses begin. When the turn of Esther, and here we learn the name of her father, by the way, the daughter of Abihail the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king. She did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. Notice that he's still trying to help her. He thinks she's special. And so he gives her advice. Here's what you should bring. And so that's all she takes is whatever the king advise whatever Haggai advises to bring. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Again, everywhere she goes, people are impressed with her. Everyone who sees her finds favor with her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. That is four years after things happened with Queen Vashti. So... Again, those wars with Greece have happened. We've had 12 months of, of making you look as nice as you can look. And then, and then she goes in to the king. And then we have celebrating the new queen. It works out well for Esther because she becomes the queen. It probably didn't work out well uh, for many of the others. Surely some of whom maybe never saw the king again or had any sort of um, influence in the kingdom or anything. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then what does King Ahasuerus do? He does what he always does. He throws a banquet, throws a party, just like he did last time. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. You'll find out banquets are a big deal in Persia. And, and Esther is going to remember that when, when her time is going to come to step up for God. But, so he throws a banquet for her and they're throwing gifts. They're having a, a holiday all over the Persian Empire. She's got to be thinking, what in the world is happening? My life is going in such a different direction than I thought it would ever go. Um, but she is now queen of the most powerful country in the world, uh, what still, even after its not-so-great battle with Greece, one that stretches from India to Africa, and she is queen. Everybody's celebrating her all over the Persian Empire. And then the last thing we see in chapter 2, before we try to take some lessons home from this, we find out Mordecai's position. Um, he's in the citadel in Susa for a reason, uh, because he's, he's got a special role Uh, Serving the king in the government, and he informs the king of a plot against him. This will become important as, again, the story goes on. So, first of all, verse 19 says, When the virgins were gathered together the second time, so this is the second harem, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. We might read that in English and just say, So he's just sitting down at the gate. Well, sitting at the king's gate meant something. It's a phrase used to describe Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. He sat at the king's gate. What that meant was the gate was where the important power things happened. That's where deals of business were made. That's where laws were often made. And so Daniel sat at the king's gate uh, when Daniel served uh, in the, the nation of Babylon. And so Mordecai is doing the same thing. He's got some sort of government role sitting at the king's gate. He's not just there... Just as a guy, like he's, he's got an important role to play here. And so verse 20, though, Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people. Second time we've seen this. Even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done when under his care. So she's still listening to Mordecai. Keep that in mind. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, so while he's serving the king, there's these two officials, Big Than and Tiresh. Two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door. I don't know what that means, those who guarded the door. Um, people have different guesses. Maybe they're, Maybe it's just what it sounds like. They stand at the door and they... they oh, who gets in? Who, gets it, who doesn't get in? Uh, they're bouncers, what we would call it, perhaps. Maybe that's what's going on. But these two guys, they become angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So they're close enough... in in the circle that, hey, we we can find a time to kill the king. And we're not being treated right or something. They're mad about something. And so we're going to kill the king. Well, the plot becomes known to Mordecai. Don't know how he knew. I wish we knew more about that. Did Mordecai overhear it? Did someone else tell him? Is he just paying attention and says, hey, this doesn't look right? But somehow Mordecai finds out about it. He tells Queen Esther... And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, there's a, there's a great story behind, even beyond what we're told here. Like, I wish we knew how this happened. Verse 23, so when the plot was investigated and found to be so, how'd they investigate? Did they send somebody to, to like, pretend to be on their side? Uh, did, did, they, did they let the plot happen but maybe move the king and just see if they were actually going to do what they said they were going to do? And the guys rush in and the king's not there and they... Hey, what, what are you doing here? Uh, you're doing exactly what we thought you were I wish I knew how they investigated it. But the plot was investigated and found to be so. They were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Not the Old Testament book of Chronicles. Written in the king's chronicles, the Persian king's chronicles. That, again, is going to become important as you see all the events come together. All these things are slowly happening, and God's going to use them all, good, bad, and in between, to bring about His plan. So that is Esther chapter 2, and we will see next week. um, We're doing this over seven weeks, um, mostly just chapter 3 next week. We'll see things get a little scary uh, in chapter 3. But this one, all about Esther's new life, and right there, helping the king, which will become important. I want to end with four things I hope we take home from a a trip through Esther chapter 2. Number one, one quality that already stands out about Esther. Esther is not only beautiful, she's humble. You see that come up in little hints throughout Esther chapter 2. For example, when Haggai tells her, hey, here's, here's all you should bring in as you go meet the king. She's listening. She's teachable. She's coachable. She, she's not saying, hey, I'm the one. I'm the one who knows what I'm doing here. I don't, I don't need your help. Uh, I, I think I'm smarter than you are. She's, she's listening to him. When Mordecai says, don't tell people who you are, now whether she should have listened or not, I guess we can have that discussion. But she listens. She's listening to Mordecai. She, she's not. Uh, in fact, verse 20 went on to say, at the end of that verse, Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done when under his care. So she is now queen, and she's still listening to her, her dad, the one who's raised her. Um, you say, good grief, my, my kid got a, got a boyfriend or girlfriend. They became unsufferable. Wouldn't listen to anything I said. Well, she, she is the queen, and she's still listening. She's still humble. She's still listening to, to what, what Mordecai is telling her. So she's not, she hasn't let this change her. She doesn't become queen and stop talking to people. She doesn't become queen and think she's bigger than everybody else. Uh, there's, there's pros and cons in Esther's life. The, the hiding who she is, not a great thing. Um, you might even say, I don't know how you would stop it, but she's not supposed to marry someone who's not an Israelite. That's not a, it's not a great thing. But she is humble, and, and we'll see her step forward in her faith when the time comes. Uh, on top of that, everybody, again, everybody who sees her, likes her. I don't think that's just because she was beautiful. I think there's something about her. The passage that Gary read right before I got up here, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, um, talking to ladies, but um, there's an application here to guys too as well. It says, your adornment must not be merely external. Don't let what you're wearing just be what you're wearing. Don't let it just be braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Don't let who you are just be what you look like. That's a great message, isn't it? Guys and girls, we all need to hear that. Don't let what you look like be who you are. One of my good friends in college, he had this description he would use every now and then. We thought it was funny. We probably thought it was funnier than it was, but we but we thought it was, we probably laughed more than we should have. But every now and then he would say, um, yeah, I met this met this girl tonight, and uh, she was really pretty until she opened her mouth. <laughs> and we just thought that was the funniest thing. I don't know. We, we would laugh about that a lot. But what, what he was saying there was, like, she was beautiful on the outside, but then, like, who she was wasn't real pretty. Maybe she talked ugly. Maybe you could tell faith wasn't part of her life. Maybe she was self-centered. But, but there, were, there were different, but that's how he would describe that. And we always thought it funny. Don't, don't Don't be someone... Who, who just looks pretty on the outside. Like, make, make, make who you are. Um, as 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4 says, like, let the hidden person of the heart be what, what's really attractive, what's, what's really special about us, hopefully, is who we really are, not just what we look like. To Esther's credit, she's beautiful. But that's not what's most impressive about her. Um, there's a humility about her as well. Number two, I think we learned the temptation... To hide who we are. I don't know why Mordecai's family didn't go back to Jerusalem with the 50,000 that went back to, to rebuild the temple. Uh, I don't know why. Um, I don't know, you know, his whole life is Persia, so he may not know why either, why the family didn't go back with the other Jews. But for some reason, he's telling Esther, don't tell people you're a Jew. And verse 20 again, it says it twice in this chapter. Don't tell people you're a Jew. It seems to be, maybe it's because he thought it would put her in danger, maybe, for whatever reason. Um, Or maybe he thought it would hold her back. Sometimes we also are tempted, as God's people, to sort of hide who we are, thinking that maybe it may may hold us back in some way. Sometimes our young people, and, and a lot of them are... Or at the youth um, area wide tonight, but we've all been through those those teenage years where maybe you felt like, well, if people know I'm I'm a Christian, maybe they might make fun of me, maybe they might think it's uncool, maybe they might not want to be as good a friend with me, maybe they not want to be my boyfriend or girlfriend anymore because I'm, I'm just Christianity's going a different direction than a lot of the world is, and maybe throughout our lives we can feel a little bit of that social pressure. Maybe in your job, you might be worried for people to find out just how important faith is. I hope we can all recommit ourselves to say, I'm not going to be ashamed of who I am. And who I am is a follower of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean I'm going to be unkind about it. That doesn't mean I'm going to shove it in people's faces. They've got to make their own decisions about faith. But I'm not going to hide it. One of the great passages in the Sermon on the Mount is that salt and light passage that Jesus describes His people. But as He gives that description... Don't miss the warnings here, that he gives these warnings about you're going to be tempted to not let salt and light be what you are. He says in verse 13, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt's become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're going to be tempted to become tasteless, just like everybody else, not really living for God. Verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. He says, you're going to be tempted sometimes to take your light and just sort of hide it. Just sort of put a basket over it. I don't want, I don't want people to know this is who I am. Jesus says, that, that doesn't do anybody good. He says, let your light shine. Verse 16. Let it shine before people in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. They see your light. They don't glorify you for it. They glorify God. Do it in such a way that glorify God, not you. And so we're going to be tempted sometimes. Jesus acknowledges it. You're going to be tempted to, to hide that you're supposed to be salt and light. Let's recommit ourselves to Esther and Mordecai's credit. When the moment comes, are we going to stand with God's people or not? They're going to step forward. And sometimes we got to have our own moments where we have to decide, am I going to stand with God or not? Or am I going to be scared of it? Am I going to hide it? Let's not hide it, let's stand with God and trust He's going to bless us along the way. Number three, I hope we notice becoming queen will not be Esther's biggest highlight. (laughs) This is not the end of the book. This is chapter two. There's ten of them. That uh, I think we might have, if we are just looking for a nice short fairy tale, I guess chapters one and two would have been a nice short fairy tale. That's not what this book is after. It's after bigger things, bigger things than just becoming queen. Um, I wonder. I'm just curious historically. Maybe we can ask God when we get to heaven. I wonder how much some of our later stories, like Cinderella or whatever, you know, were based on this type of this type of thing that happened back in the Persian Empire. Um, but but it's not just a It's not just a fairy tale. This isn't the curtains close and Esther became queen and good for her. What we see, this is just another way God's arranged events. And He's got bigger purposes in mind for these events. If you think about it, there's a lot of parallels with Esther and Joseph. And Joseph, in the same way, he's someone who's who's just a guy. and, And events lead him to having a very powerful place in Egypt. But that's not the point of of Joseph's life. God didn't put Joseph there just so he could say, look, I'm the second most powerful person in Egypt. There was a bigger purpose in God's plan for his people. And if Joseph had stopped being who he was, that plan never would have happened. And the same is true of Esther. God has put Esther in a place where she can make a difference for God's plan and God's people. But if she will decide not to be who she is, it's not going to happen. We never know her name. But since she will be who she should be, we know who she is. She becomes a, a, a hero of faith for God's people. But it's not just about, hey, Esther became queen. It's about this is how God has put her in a place to actually live for him. I hope, I hope as God moves us around in life, and sometimes that's the way it feels more than, more than us you know, giving God our choices. Um, sometimes it feel, you can look back and say, you know, God... God opened this door, not this one. He opened that door, not this one. As God moves us around in life and as you get to wherever God leads you, don't let your your life highlights just be that you were there. Let it be that you lived for God there. Because if you will live for God there, that's where you'll find out, oh, this is why God wanted me to be here. We mentioned Paul this morning in Philippi. Paul didn't want to be in Philippi. He's trying to get to other places. But, but hey, Lydia becomes a Christian. The jailer becomes a Christian. Oh, here's why God wanted me here. If I shine my light here, that's when I see, hey, God, let the plan come together. So don't just let it be about the stuff. Let it be, I'm going to live for God wherever He puts me. And then I'll see the pieces come together. And then number four, don't let your blessings make you prideful. Maybe a lot of us, if we had gone from just a normal person and then all of a sudden somebody thinks we're so good looking that we need to be handed this special place in the kingdom and then we're put uh, as the king or queen of the kingdom, some of us would be insufferable. So, some of us would be, we'd be prideful and we'd be jerks to everybody and we'd look down and think we're better than everybody else. To Esther's credit, she doesn't, she doesn't change in that way. She's still humble. She's still teachable. She's still coachable. I hope we'll be the same. There's a warning repeatedly in Scripture that when things are good for you in life, be careful. Be careful that you don't let God get pushed out. You see it, Old Testament and New Testament. Maybe this is good for us coming up on Thanksgiving season. Think about all the blessings that we have. God told the Israelites through Moses when they were about to go into the Promised Land. God says... Deuteronomy 6, verse 10, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. When God gives you all this stuff, that you're not even having to build, then watch yourself. Verse 12, that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You see the warning? God's going to bless you. Watch yourself. Don't let the blessings pull you away from God. God's not giving you these things for you to forget Him. God's giving you these things so you can live for Him. And then the New Testament as well, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. As if he knew that would be a challenge for us. If if we're given all the blessings, maybe we're tempted to be conceited. He says, don't fix your hope on that stuff. Fix your hope on God. Esther doesn't let the blessings change her. And I hope we won't either, wherever God puts us in life. Hear the biblical warnings. Don't let God get pushed out by your blessings so all sorts of hopefully challenging good things as we walk through esther's life what what time is it in our life there's a lot of things you could be working on your life right now a lot of things and and some a lot of things that are good some things are not so good but who we are is what i hope we're really working on not just what we look like not just what our list of accomplishments is (laughs) Not just what our paycheck is, not just what our bank account is. What, what I hope we're working on is, is deeper things. Like, like, am I right with God? Am I more like God today than I was this time last year? Or am I less like God than I was this time last year? Which direction is my faith moving? I guess my final encouragement tonight, just like we saw in Esther, what she looked like wasn't just who she was. Let's make sure we're growing in godly character. Don't just work on the surface stuff. Make sure you are becoming more like Jesus Christ. Make sure you're focusing on that, making that a big part of your life. For doing that, I think we'll see God put us in the right places where we can best fulfill His plan. Tonight, if we can help you in any way, let us know. We'd love to talk with you privately if you'd like to talk privately. But we're again going to sing a song of invitation, a chance for anyone to come before the entire church family for any step of faith. The, the song tonight, What the Lord Has Done in Me. We would love to see God give you salvation through Jesus tonight. If you've been thinking about becoming a Christian, maybe this is your night to put on Christ in baptism. Confess your faith in Jesus. Have your sins washed away. Or maybe if there's any sin in your life you'd like to get out, we'd love to pray for your forgiveness. We'd love to pray for strength for whatever you're facing. If we can help you in any way publicly tonight, you're invited to come to the front now while we stand and while we sing.